Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Nassim Nicholas Taleb, author of Fooled by Randomness and The Black Swan, two rather remarkable books about the role of chance in our lives. Nassim, welcome to Econ Talk. Hi. Now, Nassim, I, I understand your full-time job now is reading and living in your library. How's that going? Uh, you get sometimes bored, so you have to have some business activities and have a good travel agent. Other than that, uh, it's not bad. How many books are in your library? Uh, Roughly. I, I think that the number, a number has been dropping over the years. Why? Because uh, the replace. I mean, you, you get rid of stuff that uh, you change moods, you get rid of stuff, and uh, my replacement rate has been uh, not keeping up with, with my uh, uh, emptying it up. I'm but sorry. I, have, I mean, I have, I have thousands, I'd say. But not 30,000? Uh, no, no, not, okay. not like Umberto Eco. Nothing near Umberto Eco. Um, now, you say at the end of Fooled by Randomness, and this is a quote, we favor the visible, the embedded, the personal, the narrated, and the tangible. We scorn the abstract, end of quote. Uh, explain what you mean by that. It's, one of, it's the major theme okay. of really both books. It's mostly the, the, like I, 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 uh, I use that as a uh, – what I realized at the end of the book, okay, The Black Swan, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the, the Fooled by Randomness, that, hey, what, what am I all about? And uh, so this I'm thinking, how can I link everything I've been thinking about for the last X number of years, uh, X number of decades, okay, in one, in one single topic, one single theme? And then I realized, hey, you know, it is the confirmation bias. And explain what that is. And I'll tell you, the, the black swan is a problem where you tend to believe that all swans are white because you've never seen a black swan. So you rule out the black swan, and you rely on confirmation, which is okay if you're dealing with birds, okay? Uh, The confirmation bias is simply um, not taking seriously what you don't see and taking more seriously what you see, which in a very primitive environment does a very good job to get you out of trouble. But, now, in, but in less primitive environments, in say, a primitive environment, say for example, if you uh, uh, don't see a, a huge elephant, you're okay. Okay, odds are they're not going to be a huge elephant. Now, in a non-primitive environment, you will have to um, wait much longer before drawing consequence, because the random variables we have in the real world are more and more what we call fat-tailed. Fat-tailed means that dominated by a small number of observations, okay? And I will, I will, I will, I will explain it uh, later with my uh, dichotomy, mediocristan versus uh, extremistan. You, do you want to, why don't you actually talk about that uh, dichotomy now? So you, uh, okay. you talk about how we, there are two countries that we live in uh, often at the same time, mediocristan and extremistan. So uh, what is mediocristan? Great. So uh, let's play the thought experiment. That's my classical thought experiment. If you uh, collect a thousand people from planet Earth, 
uh, and, and, and and only members of planet, you know, people from the human race, not outside the human race, and not outside planet Earth. No giraffes. No giraffes, and nobody outside planet Earth. Okay, you have a thousand people, and make sure you have, uh, uh, say, no more than a Frenchman. Okay, because it can be annoying to non-Frenchmen. And also, no more than one person from Texas, and you can put them together if you want. So you you're so you are Sorry. so wicked. <laughs> Sorry, you are so wicked. Okay, so you can have a good sample of, of of the world's population, and you put them all on a scale. Okay, now think of the heaviest human being you can find, or you can think of. Okay, that can still be called a human being, of course. Okay, and add that person to the scale. How much of the total will that person represent? Trivial. 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 Half yeah. a percent. Okay. So, yeah. and, and if, you, if your sample goes to 10,000, the exception, basically, that, that heavy person is not going to represent, is going to wane. Okay. So, literally, okay, the, 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 the exceptional, okay, is inconsequential, okay, in a class of random variables like weight. Whereas your sample becomes very large, okay, no single observation can impact the total. Well, everything in statistics is based on that. <laughs> it's called the law of large numbers. Yep. Or everything in statistics that people tend to learn. Okay? The law of large numbers. As your sample becomes large or is sampling everything, okay, you converge to some number. The average becomes very stable. Okay? And as you talk about in the book, uh, yes. we, we know this, those of, those of our listeners who have survived... Um, of course, on statistics, this is the normal distribution. It's the Gaussian distribution. And poor Mr. Gauss comes in for a little bit of pounding indirectly in your book because of just his name being attached to it. I, I really like Mr. Gauss. But, yeah, I, but, oh, I, I love Mr. Gauss. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but we, we learn a world of, about probability from, from Gauss's world, which is this world of, of nice, smooth, normally distributed stuff, where, as you point out, Outliers, so-called outliers, are unimportant because okay. they don't move the mean at all. That's, that, that's, that's, that's pretty much the point. And, and, and it's not just the Gaussian. It's called the Gaussian family, broad family of the Gaussian, right. or something that uh, also called the Gaussian basin. Okay. And that's mediocristan. So, that is mediocristan. So literally, mediocristan, the best example is, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, weight. Okay? Uh, I, uh, the, uh, uh, how many calories do you consume on, say, the day where you're going to eat the most, say, Thanksgiving? How many calories are you going to have that day? Eh, 5,000 maybe, 5, if you really put it, have a good day. Maybe 10, actually. 10,000, okay. Uh, you consume what, about 800,000 calories a year? I right. consume about 800,000 calories a year. Okay. It's not going to make, a single day is not going to make you overweight, which is excellent news. Sort of. Problem. <laughs> uh, the problem is that no single day is going to make you poor, uh, going to make you thin, okay? Right. So that's a, that class of variables is something that we tend to encounter in a primitive environment, okay? Now, the primitive environment has other complicated variables, but, you know, that's mostly what you see. Okay. The size of the elephant you're going to encounter is not going to exceed some, some amount. Okay. Now, take the very same sample of 10,000 people, or of 1,000 people, and add to that sa sample the richest human you can think of, who can still be called a human, of course. All right? Yeah. And uh, I'm sure you're going to select uh, the gentleman in Seattle. Yes, take Bill Gates. Okay, so worth about fifty billion. <laughs> okay. Although I explained to my children that his wealth is not as exciting, quite as exciting as that, because it's it's not so liquid. But he's he's a wealthy man. Okay, he's a wealthy man, 
And 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 remember that you're selecting people from the you know you're going to have people from Texas, but you're going to also have someone from Botswana there. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know what the net worth is going to be like, but definitely much less than a rounding error in his the computation of his net worth. Right. So, so unlike here, unlike weight, income is um, not normally distributed. Exactly. So uh, not not just that, but it's 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 dominated by the exceptional. Yes. Okay. So here we have two classes of random variables, and uh, and I figured that out when I started trading currencies. Because. Okay. Because in currencies. The, the main example is that of, I started really encountering these random variables. I say in a book that I saw it in the crash of 87, but it was in when I, I started trading in 85. So in 86, we had a, a couple of uh, abrupt shocks, okay? And an old trader told me the story of the German currency, the Reichsmark, or whatever market it was called. The Deutschmark, okay. I think. Well, no, then, yeah. yeah, then it, it was, was before nice, the Deutschmark, yeah. okay? Yeah. And that currency went from three to a dollar to four point three trillion to a dollar. Slight inflation. Slight. Okay. So you can realize that that the variability of that currency, everything in the history of currencies, is going to be dominated by that example. Okay. Yeah. And it's not uncommon. Uh, you see it with a lot of things. I mean, I've seen interest rate go to in the, in the Irish punt in um, the early 1990s go from uh, something like twelve uh, percent to uh, six thousand percent. In a few minutes, okay. Where, where I mean, was that? Uh, in um, during the, the you know we had devaluation in 1992. Uh huh. Okay, during that period. Okay. I mean, I've seen interest rates experience uh, 50 sigmas, no problem. 50 standard deviations, no problem. Okay. While people were calling them uh, Gaussian. Mm -hmm. So okay, so now we have two domains. Okay. Now look at the second domain, extremistan, where the exception is quite important, and look around you. Okay. Uh, whether in economic life, okay, uh, artistic uh, success, uh, wars, okay, um, impact of reputation, you see. Baseball. And, uh, sorry. Baseball. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't, yeah, baseball. It seems to me that the talent. Yeah, but given that it's a tournament, yeah, you have that effect in the income. Okay. Yeah. The income of a baseball. The income of baseball players probably, if you take the total income, it would be dominated by a small number of people. Yeah. Okay, but uh, but but effectively, our physical abilities are a sort of Gaussian. Yes. Okay? Are not. I mean, as a combination, Gaussian with slight fat tails. Yes. No, uh, but no, nothing like ex uh, extremist time. Okay. Uh, the uh, no, now you realize that that take the, the book business that if you have uh, six thousand novels, uh, serious novels published in the English language every year, um, between five and twenty books are going to dominate the sales. Okay. Yes. Most of them More written. The, sorry. Most of them written by a woman in England with the initials J.K.R. <laughs> if you pick the right year, uh, and you call it a novel, you said serious novels, but but yes, a handful but, will dominate the sales. A handful? No, no. But even, even outside the, the the outside, I'm, I'm taking her out of the sample. When I looked at the numbers, it was counted as a children. Uh, yeah. Right. As a children book, but uh, if you include her, of course, no, she's. You know, so so you have that. Uh, I mean, in cultural uh, life, you have uh, in, cult in anything that is sort of constructed by us. Okay. So you have that effect. Okay. Now, I'm gonna go back to that. Uh, we scorn the abstract. Okay. That notion is going the abstract. Scorning the abstract, scorning what you don't see, works very well in mediocristan. Because in mediocristan, typically, what you see is pretty much what's there. Why? Because you don't need a very large sample to, have a, uh, to get acquainted with the total properties. 
In fact, about 30 is often pretty about, good. Exactly. You that's don't need 1,000, 10,000, 100,000. Yeah, that's the rule of thumb. Okay, so um, which and, and that's also we're going we're to see when 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 I had chatted with you, you thought that uh, food by randomness was about behavioral finance. I want to have nothing to do with behavioral finance. Okay, <laughs> because one of the mistakes they make is they say, well, people tend to make a mistake of uh, allocating one over n. Okay, if you give them a hundred, uh, you know, uh, items, they tend to allocate non-rationally, not using the Gaussian. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. And uh, and uh, and I, I my 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 is that it's the only rational thing we do. Right? What do you mean by that? Uh, if you give people a lot of stocks uh-huh. to pick from, they're not going to use uh, the you know portfolio theory recommends because based on a Gaussian, a certain number of stock will sample the total. Uh-huh. And but effectively, if you give people stocks, they don't they won't be aware of it. They're going to have as many as uh, they have in front of them, and that's called the one over n heuristic. They take way too many. They, they will take, take way too many. More than they need to be representative of the sample. Exactly. And when I, when I saw a, a criticism of that by saying this is irrational, I realized, I looked at it, I said, oh, my God, this is the only rational thing we do. <laughs> right? So let me, just, let me just make sure I understand this. You're yeah. saying that if, in a Gaussian world, the so-called normal mediocristan world, a small sample is representative, and there'd be no reason – to sample the full sample, it's just a waste. It's, it's exactly, a waste. and also because your returns degrade, so you take you take a good sample that has of, of quality stocks, because as you're going to increase diversification, you're going to degrade your expected return supposedly, supposedly. by having a larger sample. But your point is, is that in many examples in life, you want the bigger sample, even though it's irrational in a Gaussian mediocristan world and an extremistan world, the tails might be where might be where the action is, and you're wise to take a much bigger sample. Exactly. And okay. if you want the very simple, simplest evidence, take how many stocks we have listed today. We have close to 10,000 stocks listed in America. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of stocks that went out of business. Okay. Either way, by 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 merging, right, or uh, by uh, by yeah, uh, yeah. leaving us, uh, you know, uh, the old traditional way of going bust. Okay. So. Uh, uh, so many more than than, than ten thousand went into that pool. Okay, the OEX, which is the top one hundred stocks, it can represent between thirty five and sixty five percent of capitalization, depending on when you look at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> depending on what a big stock does. Sure. Okay, so here you have ten thousand. Okay, you take ten thousand stocks. Okay, uh, uh, it's going to be dominated over over a long time by by hundred stocks. You realize that uh, picking thirty isn't going to give you a good protection from sampling error. Right. You see, this is a recommendation to basically index. If you're going to be in stocks, which I'm not, if you're going to be in stocks, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, I am in the market, but in, in very speculative things like venture capital. But if you're going to be in stocks, you'd better index. Okay. That's oh, my. That's well, we my just point. had uh, we just had John Bogle on. Econ Talk recently, who is the uh, the premier uh, founder and defender of indexing, and uh, as you point out in your book, it's kind of an interesting tension because uh, indexing can lead to a greater sense of serenity than you're entitled to, but relative to many other stock activities, it is much more serene. It is going to be the safer place, but it's not as safe perhaps, as you think it is. Uh, let, let's talk about that a little bit, not ex- not with the stock example, but let's continue on with extremist, Dan. Okay. The, the, the point that, that I think we, we want to make sure the listeners understand is, is the black swan point in these kind of settings where the unexpected event that you have no past experience with, it's not just the risk 
that we normally associate with the stock market, which is it can go up and down, or the risk we associate with a whole variety of things in life, but the risk that is unknown. Yeah, but I mean, if you're invested in the stock market, if you depend on the stock market, if you have neighbors who are likely to get rich, then your risk here is sometimes missing on a big stock, okay? <laughs> Say that again? Your risk is not necessarily losing money in the stock market. Mm-hmm. Your risk can be missing on a sure. big opportunity. Of course. Okay? And if you miss that opportunity, someone who didn't get Google or someone who didn't get uh, uh, YouTube, when, okay, is missing on a lot of things. I would put one little... Um, twist to that indexing story is I don't like to index uh, with S&P 500. I'd rather have uh, uh, an indexing that's more weighted uh, in in one over N way. More like the Wilshire 5000. Yeah, there's something more one over N than... than, But I'm not too much involved in markets uh, uh, from that perspective, uh, so I'm not uh, aware of all the nuances. Okay, well, let's let's move on. So we've been talking about mediocristan. Let's talk about extremistan. Yes. The, the fat tails and the and the black swan that get you. Uh, okay, so so uh, let, let me uh, describe. Okay, that that defect we have. Okay, is that we tend to think that hey, uh, even physically, all right, it's more than intellectually, all right, physically. That if you make money for three, four, five days, that hey, you know what, you're a profitable person. You're going to ignore the possibility of a uh, large loss, okay, even in the Gaussian world. So, uh, and and regardless of your uh, sophistication, even if you're a skilled statistician, when it will come to trading decisions, you're going to be influenced by something Kahneman calls the law of uh, small numbers, (laughs) belief in the law of small numbers, okay? Okay. So we we already have a defect, even in Gaussian, you see, of of, uh, making inferences based on very small numbers. data. Someone, for example, who goes to the racetrack or even to the casino and has a few good days in a row might be fooled by randomness into thinking that they're skilled at what, we're, at what they're doing. Exactly. I mean, I feel that myself. Listen, I, I wrote The Black Swan. I also wrote Fooled by Randomness, okay, in which I say, hey, you, you shouldn't pay attention to random data. But whenever I'm involved, and, and, and this is why I can, I, 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 I can no longer look at the screen, whenever I look at the screen, I automatically make, without noticing, you see, if your moods is not determined by your uh, consciousness. Your moods are determined by uh, very shallow uh, <laughs> inputs from your environment that you don't necessarily notice, okay? Yeah. So I make I make that mistake of taking uh, these uh, things seriously, okay? So taking data. So th- this is what I call the confirmation bias, where we, we tend, in mediocre stand, you can confirm. You can say, okay, what I've seen is sufficient. Now, let me give you the best example of an error that we tend to make um, of thinking we are in mediocristan, behaving as if we were in mediocristan, when in fact we are in extremistan. And that mistake is uh, sort of like how I start with the, the, the third chapter of the Black Swan, the fourth chapter, I think, is with the, the story of U.S. banks. American banks lost in the summer of 1982 more money than they ever made before. Plus one block. Cumulative, you mean? Cumulative, yeah. yes. They, 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 they lost everything. Okay, American banks. Now, in, in the Black Swan, I say, yeah, you know, if you ask someone uh, to describe a banker, they'll tell you that these people are not necessarily good-looking, dress very well, and they are um, rather uh, boring and dull. 
because okay. they're so conservative. They're so cautious. Exactly. So what, what, what they do is they tend to hide, what I say, randomness under the rug or hide it from themselves. So basically, they're completely fooled by small sampling. They live in extremist time and say, oh, you, you know what? I have a good year. I've had a two good years, three good years. It's not sufficient because you have a small probability of a very large loss. Then their method is not of inference, is not adapted to the environment they're in. And that is the tragedy of, um, of, of a lot of financial uh, uh, markets, okay? In which you often, finance, you know, is effectively a very fat-tailed um, domain, and you often pay people an annual bonus, like bankers, okay? You say, oh, you did very well. Uh, you know, you didn't have any bankruptcy, you did very well. Okay, so uh, particularly when, when you land internationally, where all these bankruptcy lumped it all in one. Okay, it all happens in one block. So uh, we have a mismatch between the time taken to uh, uh, really see the statistical properties and the time people use to make a uh, qualitative uh, uh, ranking of, of the person's performance. What I like about the treatment you give this issue in the black swan is the pervasive nature of this problem way beyond uh, financial markets. So, for example, um, the use of data generally to make an empirical case is often enormously oversold. Let me ask the question this way. You call yourself, uh, I think, a skeptical empiricist, which is how I would describe myself as well. Um, don't just give me the narrative. Don't just tell me ex post why something is makes sense. Give me a prediction that I that you can live by, that you can hold up as a as a real proof of of the the argument you're making. So we demand data. We understand that data are hard often, but of course people use data in incredibly deceptive, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, in incredibly deceptive ways to give their uh, narratives a an air of of uh, scientism, uh, a dismissive term that that Hayek uses, yes. an air of scientism that that is not scientific. So, so many social issues in the world today, people invoke data to give their uh, stories a, a rigor that they don't really have. And I think that's an incredibly important lesson. Yeah, yeah. so let me, let, let, me, uh, let me show you the development of, of this idea in, in both books. Okay? In The Black Swan, I discuss something called the narrative fallacy, where basically you can look at a series of events and invent uh, a, uh, a narrative that fits them in a sort of ex post explanation. Okay? Ex post, it looks brilliant. Ex ante, uh, visibly, um, it doesn't work. Okay, yeah. so there's, this is an, what there's I call no ex ante in these stories. There's it's no, always exposed. It, all exposed, but what? Yeah, because what happens is that you you select what I call you have a prospective a, a prospective um, inability uh, to see the black swan, but a retrospective ability to weave a wink a causal link. Yep. Okay, so this is pretty much the problem of hindsight bias. Yep. That was examined by Fischhoff and all these people. And here I said that the black swan is a severe problem of hindsight bias because people seem, after the fact, to think that they predicted the black swan. So the narrative fallacy also I mean, is very linked to the confirmation bias. The narrative fallacy, we are quite uh, suckers for stories. So we like to find a story and expose we have that. Okay. Now, let's move into statistics. 
uh, uh, I was I was uh, three weeks ago. I I was in San Francisco and uh, uh, at a uh, meeting of the American uh, uh, Association of National of uh, Science. Okay, where a gentleman called Ioannidis showed us data showing that eighty percent of epidemiological studies fail to replicate in real life. Yeah, okay. that. yeah. <laughs> this is. Let's say, that, let's say that again. 80% of 80%. epidemiological studies, so these are studies looking at causal, so-called causal uh, health effects of this environmental factor or this food or this medicine, This right? That's what we're talking yes, about. Exactly. Are, so, are not replicatable, meaning that when people try to replicate them, they don't turn out to hold up. Exactly, which shows you exactly the difference between our ability to predict okay, and our ability to post-dict. So what these people did is... Uh, what what epidemi- uh, people with, with, with all these statistical data do is process a lot of information, yes. and they're going to find some kind of accidental relationship. That will be, you see, used as a, uh, a proof, quote-unquote, quote okay, of a link between, say, uh, smoking and uh, breast cancer. They, they, they even found a study showing that smoking lowers your risk of breast cancer in some cohort that did, okay? Right, one. So, so you have, okay, so this is called non-experimental knowledge. This is called simply statistical knowledge. So what it looks like, and that was what I predicted, okay, when I started getting involved in, in this idea. I said, the more data we are going to have, okay, the more, the worst our statistical knowledge of the world is going to be. Is a very unintuitive idea, and I, I like the way one of the ways you talk about it in the books are uh, the more you read of the newspaper, yes. the, the dumber you get. Uh, exactly. That is. Uh, yeah. There's another also thing about processing information. Not, not because not because newspapers are full of errors, just but because the the wealth of information, the profusion, along with the narratives that the paper is filled with, are, are um, just not informative. Yeah, no, but there is another, it's linked to the confirmation uh, bias. Uh, let me tell you how I link it. When I provide you with data, okay, you are going to produce a lot of theories. Once you have a theory in your head, you're going to just look for confirmation. Yeah, that's deep. You see? So this is a problem of the confirmation bias. Let me give you an example why it's biological. I found a paper uh, written in 1960-something by Brunner and Potter. A seminal paper for me, but not, of course not very noticed. Where uh, if I showed you the picture of a dog... Okay, mm-hmm. a very blurred picture of a dog. Okay, you would not, uh, you wouldn't see a dog. Okay, it's blurred. Okay. Uh, so I, 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 I'm going to show it to you and show it to someone else. Okay. I'm going to increase the the resolution. Okay, in ten cranks for you. All right. Okay, it's going to get sharper and sharper. It's going to get sharper and sharper. Up to a point, some 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 degree of clarity. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, if I do it in ten cranks for you, okay, you won't see the dog. <laughs> All right. But if I do it in, if I do it at the same time to someone else, bring it to the same uh, 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 you know same resolution. Okay. Okay. Bring it to the same level of clarity, someone else. But in five steps instead of ten, the person is more likely. Because because the the ten the ten level person is seeing something else along the way. Exactly because you want you you're going to produce ten theories uh, or nine theories, okay? Whereas the other person is going to produce four theories. 
Okay. Well, my my favorite example of this in in current life is uh, we're having a very cold spring here in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, I actually uh, said to a friend that that this was obviously uh, evidence of global warming. I I was being facetious, but um, she agreed. Uh, She said, yeah, global warming messes up the weather. So you get uncharacteristically cold springs as an example of global warming. So she's confirming her theory with all data. All data confirms global warming. If it's cold, it's global warming. If it's hot, it's global warming. If it rains a lot, it's global yeah. warming. If we have a lot of hurricanes, global warming. If we don't have any, ah, global warming. It's an it's a extreme result. Yeah, it, it, well, this I discussed with this uh, notion of uh, linearity, nonlinearity. Okay, and I brought this philosophical problem uh, called the riddle of induction. Okay, mm-hmm. which is a very complex idea, but in it I show you the following. If you're using a linear model, okay, your degrees of freedom are not very high, okay? You have basically one or two, okay? Uh, either you're minimizing on least square or uh, mean deviation, okay? So basically, if I give you a series of points and you want to make a projection, there's only one and one line that will minimize the errors, okay? Mm-hmm. So you're going to get one line. You can project in one line. The problem is that if I tell you let's use nonlinear models, <laughs> you can have an infinity of possible models each one with an infinity sure. prioritization, all right? And we like, the problem is we like linear models because they're simple. And often well, and that's wrong. enough. And often, yeah. uh, sometimes not wrong, right? Well, sometimes not wrong, but typically wrong. That, that the problem, again, is mediocristan extremistan, is that linear, uh, uh, let me tell you the tragedy of extremistan, is that it's not linear, and uh, we're going to, odds are we're going to come up with the wrong model, okay? So your model error increases in extremistan. And this I show you, uh, I discuss in a book uh, with the example of the, of the forward and backward problems, okay? Explain. Uh, let me tell you the, the, the forward and backward problem, which is typically, um, which is another mistake. Uh, it's, it's all linked to the same error in a way, but, but this one is a little special, okay? If I have an ice cube on a floor, okay, and I ask you to predict uh, how the, you know, little bit of... Uh, of water is going to be uh, like, you will probably come up with an idea of how uh, step two will look like, okay? When it melts. Uh, sorry? When it melts. Exactly, after it melts, okay? Now, if I show you water on the floor, trying to figure out what it came from, you, you can have an infinity of... Uh, Slightly harder. Much harder. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, it's the same thing when you go for models. If I have a theory, okay, you can project from the theory. But if you, but you have, if you have uh, uh, data, you have so many theories, okay, that can fit that data. And that is tragic, okay? I mean, it's tragic if you use conventional uh, the, the methods that we've been trained to use and methods that are encouraged and methods that you learn when you, uh, when you uh, get into uh, theoretical social science with a lot of theories, okay? But it's not a big deal if if uh, if uh, you have uh, if you like rules of thumb and if you uh, uh, don't like to make uh, uh, big theories and if you uh, I mean my, most of my book is about medicine if you use the methods of the uh, the empirical medicine okay the second and third century empirical medicine okay stick to facts don't make big claims <laughs> and try to use minimum amount the minimum amount of theories. I want to come back to the the epidemiological um, result that we talked about earlier, because there's an interesting uh, parallel in economics. Yes. Uh, you talked about 
a paper you saw that 80% of the studies are wrong and that there's an inherent bias in these so-called scientific studies, whether they're in medicine or whether they're in economics, because if you find nothing, it's very hard to publish it. So you spend a lot of time adding variables, trying other things. And in economics, uh, Ed Lemer at UCLA uh, pointed this bias out. And it's a, it's what I like about it is it goes back to an old professor of mine, George Stigler, who said that when he was a, a young man or youngish man and you had a theory and you wanted to test it, you might run three or four statistical analyses uh, called regression in economics and statistics to try to fit a line or a curve to the data. So you spent a lot of time thinking about what belonged in that model because running a regression analysis in the old days took hours and hours and hours of very painful uh, hand calculations using some kind of primitive calculator. Whereas today, you could run hundreds of regressions, hundreds of different statistical models uh, because of the increased power of computing, and you managed to convince yourself, strangely enough, that the ones that came out with significant results must have been the good models. The ones that didn't work out, those were not specified correctly. And of course, they're also the ones that won't get published typically. So we have this tremendous bias. We're fooled by randomness. It's, it's a wonderful example of your general thesis that we're fooled by randomness. We're we're generating uh, these numerical analyses, and we select the ones that confirm our bias, and we ignore the ones that, that do not. Uh, Lemur's paper made a little splash and then was quietly um, pushed under the rug, as you say. It's not, it's not commonly uh, invoked in empirical work, which is a shame. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these things uh, have been discovered and rediscovered over time, and people don't pay attention to them because, of course, uh, just uh, you guys are uh, Hayekian, and uh, and, and I, I think that your opinion about civil servants, that there's a self-serving element in civil service. Okay, you also find that self-serving elements in disciplines, you see? Yes, you do. But let, let me, let me, tell you, let me uh, I have an idea I'd like to discuss here. Yeah, sure. Another prediction that's very interesting. Uh, that I did not put in a book because, I mean, the black swan uh, is more about medicine than it is about uh, economics, okay? So I didn't put a lot of economic uh, examples linked to economic life. Uh, You know, if you have, say, a 1,000 traders, okay, Mm -hmm. you're bound to have three or four uh, mega uh, spurious winners, okay, after 10 years, okay? Just by pure... Randomness or by what? By pure randomness. Okay. okay. No skills. Okay. Right. So of course, Dark you may have more or less skills. You're going to have encounter a certain number of spurious winners in a tails. Okay. Yes. And these are the ones who attract capital and displace the people who are, uh, you know, can be spurious losers or just regular people. Okay. People reveal their own properties are going to be completely swamped by these people. Okay. Right. Because we tend to look for the high performers. The problem we have today, just like with medicine, okay, is that you have so many traders. You have so many people involved in the markets, okay, that, that that tail, okay, that what I call the super tail, okay, the stellar winners, is going to be linear to the number of participants, which is huge today. Right. Which means that if you want to start a career in finance today, okay, mm-hmm. you're, you're, it's, it's close to hopeless. Even if you have a great ex-ante amount of skills, because, as you said, you're going, to have, you're going to be swamped by a high number of spurious winners who are going to displace you and put you out of business. So I, I want to 
let's generalize that to to what I think is one of the more um, provocative ideas in in both books, which is when you see. Uh, let me say it the way you say it. A good dentist, a dentist who makes a lot of money, is probably pretty good at being a dentist. A trader who makes a lot of money on a finan- in a financial market may or may not be a good trader. May be just lucky. Yes. And and the way I understand your reading of that evidence is when asked, is this person who is very successful in financial markets, is this person skilled? Your answer is, I don't know. Is that correct? That would be the correct way to summarize, right? You would not rule out the possibility. You could not rule out. I mean, there are, I, there are tricks where you can reduce the amount of uncertainty, but but uh, but you can never say it's 100% skilled, and you can never say this guy's 100% an idiot. But but we tend to reward all successful people with the crown of skilled. Exactly. It's the same, we, we reward them the same way, and 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 this this is not. I mean, this took me to a lot of a lot of uh, disciplines. Uh, I mean, it took me a lot, of, a lot of areas of research. I'm I'm mostly interested in religion now, but uh, so basically, we are more likely to mistake the random for non-random than to mistake the non-random for random. Because of our behavioral biases built into Because of everything. Behavioral bias and masquerading as science very often, like with statistics. Okay, statistics is a great uh, example of a pseudoscience, okay, that plays on our, I mean, statistics is largely, not all statistics, of course, but pseudoscience, uh, uh, you know, uh, playing on our desires to be suckers for certainties. Yeah, we do. It's an interesting tension in, in the book that you don't talk about, which is, you want us to think about extremistan. We have a tendency to force all the world into mediocristan, into the normal distribution. Yes. And we just take a small sample, and I can sleep well at night. And you're, one of the themes of your book is, nah, you really shouldn't sleep so well at night because uh, the level of risk involved in your life isn't as easily captured by the measures that, that you think because the tails are very fat. They're not as thin as they are in the Gaussian normal world. Yeah, but, but, I, I sort of say uh, no. I, I say do what I'm doing, okay? Which is I think I, well, I'm, I sleep very well at night because I don't have a lot of downside exposure and I have positive exposure to the extreme events. Right, but that but you're in a special case, and I have to. I have no, to, anyone can be in that case. No, right? I have to quibble with you because yeah. that's that's good advice for somebody who has wealth or who is financially comfortable. If you want to build wealth, if you want to save money, if you're 25 yeah. years old. Uh, that advice is is very um, then, then no that, then, then I have a variant of the advice. Okay, my point is that we don't know downside risks. Okay, and Agreed. I classify the world. I break the world in two categories. All right, uh, uh, investments. Okay, I say in investments or in decision making. Any form of decision. Let's take investments. Okay, you have investments that are prone to negative uh, black swans, namely banking and reinsurance. You have investments that are uh, uh, neutral to the black swan. Okay. And you have investments that are prone to positive black swans, like biotech or a certain classes of biotech, of course, uh, book publishing, uh, stuff like that. Right. Okay. So where the random variables can hit you, okay, like when I wake up in the morning, okay, I make sure that when I wake up in the morning that if I go down on Google News, if I go down to my study and check Google News, all right, that as far as my, my financial or investment, not my, my emotional investment, right. Right? my financial, okay, I want that any big headline on Google News, all right, okay, 
Yeah. I want it to either be uh, a neutral, all right, or immensely positive. <laughs> okay. Or immensely positive. Exactly. Sure. This is, okay, so this is how I organized my life. Okay, so I sleep very well at night, you see. Of course, it carries some costs, but I sleep very well at night. And in, you know, in, in, uh, in, in there, uh, uh, I, I, I put chapter 13, okay, which is, uh, uh, which, I mean, because people kept telling me, yeah, I got your point. Tell I get your point. But, but, you know, what should I do? Okay, in chapter 13, I have a, I have a how-to manual, all right? Right. And in it, I, I tell people sometimes, people tend to look at what people call risks, all right, are often not risky. And what people call uh, uh, risky, uh, not risky, are often risks. Like, for example, if you use a Markowitz or use or any of this uh, junk science, okay, to say, okay, I want to have a medium risk portfolio. Your portfolio is very prone to model error, okay, so you can have a black swan in it, okay? okay. If you take the same average risk by putting 80% of your cash in treasury bills, Okay, and hire two security guards and hire someone to spy on the security guards. All right. Okay. Yeah. And, and put the bills on a bank. Okay. And whatever you want. What I'm saying is maximum, the maximum, the highest amount of safety you can get for that, for these 80% of your portfolio. And for 20%, take all the risks you can. Okay. Now, the average risk, <laughs> okay, would be. Uh, uh, um, would be uh, the same as in a, in, a, in, a, in a previous case, all right? Your upside would be huge, and you would have literally no downside below negative uh, 20%, okay? Yeah. Or 80% or 90%. It's called the barbell. So there is a superiority to the barbell. Is it priced in? I'm not that sure, okay? Yeah. That was, that was my idea. Collect as many positive blacks one. But you could do that in private life. Well, I'd say, okay, try to play the card of serendipity, okay? How? Well, go to parties, right? Live in New York City or you go to parties. You go to parties, you run into someone. If you're an academic and you're craving ideas, you may run into someone who's going to give you a great idea, okay? Someone slightly drunk will give you a good idea, you see? Right, you don't, and, want, you don't want to live in, uh, in a place. You want, to, you want the fat tails. You want the, want the small chance yes. of something fascinating happening rather than um, the dull mediocrity of, of the comfortable, serene life. I know I like comfortable serenity, but I want a maximum exposure to what I call envelope of serendipity, okay? And I tell people, well, if you want a comfortable, serene life, or if you're autistic and go to parties, okay, send your, uh, your uh, you know, associates, okay? Yeah. So, now, I have one thing that's quite central we didn't speak about, all right? Okay, the, 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 I, we spoke about the, the, the confirmation bias, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's... Uh, uh, ramifications, okay? Uh, of course, we have, uh, you know, inference from small samples, uh, fooled by statistics, fooled by randomness, uh, fooled by performance, uh, and, and a lot of stuff that enter that guy, and also the dichotomy, uh, mediocristan, uh, extremistan. The, 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 but the central idea here I have, which you guys should like, um, is as follows. I, I'm a little more extreme uh, uh, than, than Hayek, and it's far more extreme, is the following. Whenever someone uh, 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 looks at a dog, okay, they have some trouble accepting that this animal is not the product of some design, but the product of a random process in which only the upper bond was selected, or not, just not, uh, roughly the upper bond was selected. Okay. Over time, and this is what you got. You got a dog, okay? All right. All right. So you have that random process, okay, got you the dog, Okay. But when they look at a car or a computer or a laser, they, they're not likely, okay? Even, even Those who have no difficulties accepting that a dog is a product of a random process. Right. 
Okay, even those will have difficulty accepting when they look at a car that's a product of the same random process. Actually, even worse random process. Right? Sort of. So explain. Okay. The the. I, uh, because of hindsight bias, we have the feeling that when you read the history of economic life, scientific discoveries and all that, you have the impression that it all came from design. And my theory is as follows. We are not good at knowing. We are not good at planning. We're not good at forecasting. We're just good at doing. So it's a classical techne uh, episteme from Aristotle. Okay. Okay. So we are not good at knowing. Okay, now, of course, there's a Hayekian element and says that he think collectively we're good at knowing, but not individually, right? right. But there is a, there's this techne versus episteme tension. Is that I have the feeling that we're fooled by our own skills. Now, let's run history backwards. Instead of you know looking at history the way we read it today, with uh, so it looks like everything we were looking for this and found it, we were looking for this cure. Let's look at history. And the history of medicine, history of scientific discovery... It's going to be depressing, okay? Most of what people were looking for, okay, they did not find. Most of what they found, they were not even looking for. Correct. And a very small number of people recognize that. Of course, that was the core of my masters, the people I want to promote, is the skeptical and persistent. I'm not skeptical and persistent in the modern sense, like, say, Popper and stuff like that. Skeptical and persistent in the sense of Menodotus of Nicomedia, okay? Uh, and uh, Sextus Empiricus, and who are the central people in the black form. Okay? And for them, medicine was a stochastic process. You discover the things by doing, you have no theories, have the minimum amount of theories, okay? And really, as little as you can. Theories are, like you guys look at government as uh, like a medicine, okay? Typically bad medicine, okay? Medicine that, that's worse for the patient than... Then, then can be you know right. can be more harmful to the patient than can be helpful, okay? And, and they look at theories the same way, okay? <laughs> and right. it seems to be, okay. So let me take an let's take the three most consequential discoveries of the last fifty years, okay? Whenever you ask people, typically the first thing they're going to tell you is the internet, the computer, okay, and the laser, okay? And look at how these things develop. One is nobody. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the laser was not built for eye surgery. Correct. It was built just for someone who wanted to show off, okay? <laughs> so I think that engineers are autistic people who just like being engineers. And they do a lot of things. Because of the co- we don't notice, okay, what I call the cemetery of discovery, things that, that discovery that didn't go anywhere, okay? You notice right. those were either helpful for other applications, helpful for other um, discoveries, okay? Or uh, helpful to do something called scientific research, Okay. Well, like the example so, you give in the book of penicillin. Penicillin was just some mold that uh, Fleming found. Turned wasn't what he was looking for. Probably the most significant health discovery of the 20th century, and it was an accident. Well, I mean, we we discovered more and more things. Okay, were were accidents, and and we have a controlled experiment. You see, the best controlled experiment is the National uh, Cancer Foundation. Uh, National, Council, uh, no, National uh, Cancer N- Institute. Sorry? I think it's the National Cancer, cancer Institute. Cancer Institute, NCI, yeah. okay? Yeah. Uh, you know that uh, the NCI really didn't discover, they went through thousands. I discovered, the, I mean, I read that in a book that uh, that I, uh, unfortunately I was unable to cite in the Black Swan because it came came out last month. Or phenomenal book uh, by a gentleman called Mayers. And he really went through the, 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 the data. And okay. what did he find? The NCI 
was founded, spent billions of dollars. They went through 130,000 compounds systematically. Mm-hmm. Uh, discovered almost nothing. <laughs> and the biggest discovery in cancer was, was from mustard gas, or from a side effect of mustard gas. Mm-hmm. And this is how they got uh, chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so here you have, you have a, a, a nice controlled experiment. Of, of, uh, uh, you have in the directed research, 130,000 okay, compounds. Okay. Top-down research, okay, right. versus completely random discoveries. And typically in medicine, okay, just doing research is a good thing because you don't know what you're going to find. So you might as well give you yourself the illusion that you're looking for uh, chemotherapy. You may discover a headache medicine, you see. Right. We know that Viagra, you know, was discovered from other medicines. And, and even now, the, the, look at the Genentech, uh, the, the macular degeneration drug, Okay. But now, Sam, you might be being fooled by randomness and the confirmation bias here. I mean, you've chosen a handful of medicines that were accidental, penicillin. No, no, that, 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 that's different. It's not confirmation bias. You're taking – how do you avoid the confirmation bias? You take everything, the pool, okay? Right. You take the big impacting things. You list them and see if they're came. Right. Okay. But some so of them – not... Some of them, I suspect, did come from people looking for, for the particular thing they were looking for, right? Uh, I – okay, this I doubt. I mean, I, I – okay. Of course, we found things that we were looking for, of course, and also uh, we, uh, I mean, you can, all, you can also change your research a little bit and then uh, backfit it to, hey, I was looking for that. It's true. Okay? Uh, but um, I, you know, nothing beats that big controlled experiment. Yeah, I, I, well, I take the general point. I think the yeah. general point is correct, that, and it is a very Hayekian point, that trial and error uh, it's also related to some of the work on entrepreneurship by Kersner, that, that trial and error is extremely important, that you don't just sit around and figure out the right thing to do, that entrepreneurship is very much a hit-and-miss process. You throw a lot of things out there, and some things uh, work that you couldn't have predicted in advance. Yes, It's not unrelated to the stories you tell in the book about uh, blockbuster movies and blockbuster books. As you know, I'm sure from the publishing business, they're not very good at predicting what books are going to succeed. There's a handful maybe each year that they're pretty sure are going to do well, but if you look at the best books, it's, they're not the most successful books. They're not the ones that were, were predicted in advance. Same is true for movies. You cite the work of uh, interesting work of Arthur Devaney, economist, uh, has done some very interesting work on this. But if you're not careful, you could conclude from this kind of... I find this very interesting, by the way. I like, yeah. it, I like it a lot. But if you're not careful, one might conclude from your, your worldview that, quote, everything is luck, everything, no, no, is, no, no. everything yeah, yeah. is random. So, so give, me, give me the qualifiers. Okay. Let me tell you what I uh, – I call it the problem of separability, okay? You cannot uh, separate um, cause and effect that easily, okay? And everything goes back to things that are very annoying that have dominated uh, Western thought ever since Aristotle, you know, uh, wrote about it, mostly Al-Farabi, Okay, who's the guy who synthesized uh, Aristotle? Okay, with his all his layers of causations. The problem is very separate separability. If I need to wear a tie in order to become a banker, okay, does it mean that wearing a tie, okay, caused my banking success? No. Okay, Correct. so we we tend to have these uh, the problems uh, identifying the necessary from the causal. Okay, yes. it is necessary to do research to find something. Yes. Okay, so, and in in full randomness, I said, most people don't understand it. Tell me, well, this guy was like, no, you are, I'm not saying the absence of skills. If A implies B, okay, you have to be careful when you make an inference whether non-B implies non-A. Correct. 
Okay, you see, or whether but, B implies A. But okay. as you point out, most people have trouble keeping those things separate. So when you say that it's hard to distinguish uh, skill from luck, they do tend to leap to the conclusion. Therefore, all thing, all success is lucky, which is, which is not your view. It's not my view. Let me call, uh, let me uh, uh, let me give you uh, the the discussion of chapter four about the confirmation bias, in which uh, I, I discuss something a fallacy I call the Rontrip fallacy. Okay, and it's as follows: If I tell you that all Terrorists are Muslim, which is not true, and essentially I'm not Muslim. So, so if all terrorists are Muslim, all right, assuming okay that statement were true, people are very likely to mistake it for all Muslims are terrorists. Correct. That's a okay. common which, intellectual which, that, leap. Sorry, that's a common intellectual leap, which is okay. not true. In Mediocristan, or in an environment that correlates to Mediocristan, these are inconsequential. If you say all tigers are killers and all killers are tigers, all right, the difference is not a big deal. Okay, to get by. Right. In a complex environment, that fallacy can can multiply your odds by twenty thousand. All right. So, or or you make the mistake. So most people, if I tell you that all uh, uh, discoveries came from luck, all right, doesn't mean that luck or luck will produce or all luck will produce discoveries. Or it doesn't mean that all will come from luck. Okay. And it so here we have a lot of round trips that people make that are not warranted. My statement is as follows. You need, as as uh, as uh, the great Pasteur said, you need to make your own luck. Okay, and and we know pretty much how to make it in 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 the book business. And and I'm now part of the book business. <laughs> Unfortunately, to know it a little better now. I have a book uh, uh, that will be in the bookstores tomorrow. So, uh, 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 in the book business, they realize they can't predict a single bestseller. But you know what? Look at the structure of the ownership of the book business, okay? Bertelsmann owns, uh, would buy anything that prints uh, uh, text with, uh, you know, with, hard, with a hardcover on it, okay? Yeah. Okay, they would buy anything. I, I, Random House, Knopf, all these are owned by Bertelsmann, okay? Why? They realize, hey, you know, if you have enough of these, diversity, so therefore if you have a high sample of trials, we're going to get something, okay? Yeah, let the market... Not necessarily a book, okay, it's not just random, a book needs to have sentences in it. Yeah. Okay. So, so you have there's necessary elements. So, what I said about the, you know, about the problem of making uh, an inference from the necessary to the causal, thinking, mistaking it, is to me is not well developed in a book because I didn't have the time. I tried to develop in the footnotes. Well, it was still I didn't have the time. Okay. But I'm gonna sometimes explore it uh, more psychologically in my new project. The, uh, the 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 project I'm running with Dan Goldstein on uh, on research in what I call the non-ludic uh, in ecological uncertainty. Explain see? that. Okay, uh, one of the central distinctions I make in this book is in uh, statistics. Okay, aside from uh, mediocristan, extremistan, I have what I call the ludic and the non-ludic domain. Okay, what is ludic? It's simply a world of games. It's a world in which you take the rules for granted and you work within the rules. So induction works, the classical induction. Logical rules apply because it's like when you go into an IQ test, you don't doubt the questions. You don't say, well, maybe the experimenter is, uh, is lying. You don't say that. You just take for granted that, that these questions are 
right? Okay. And you try to find the answer. Okay. When you go to a casino, you don't have to worry about the casino uh, playing a trick on you. Okay. This is what I call ludic, a ludic environment. Okay, so the rules, Most of the, statistics, rules, the rules of the game are clear, and cause and effect is clear, I think. Well, where you don't have any uncertainty concerning the rules, no ambiguity, or what, okay. what, what people call ambiguity, all right? Okay. Okay, you know it's pretty much that, that the rules are there and stable, okay? okay. Uh, the, the, and then I have what I call open market uncertainty, or what I call ecological uncertainty, where you're, you're not sure about the rules. You don't know where the random variables are. You don't know where who the enemy is. You don't know what's going on. Okay. That's what I call real-world uncertainty, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, real-world uncertainty can be mediocre stand, but it's mostly extremist stand, okay? Right. And it's all very, very rare, except in poker, okay? It's very rare to have games, okay, associated with extremist stand, okay? okay. Limit poker is definitely mediocre stand, Okay. Okay. No limit poker, yeah, will sort of like uh, will 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 be ludic and extremist, and that's the only exception I found. Okay. So you have that dichotomy, ludic and non-ludic, and I'm very interested in studying our behavior in a what I call ecological world. How do we make inferences? Okay. What do you mean by an ecological world? Ecological world is a world in which, for example, you, let me give you the, 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 the psychological tests that were done in the past. Okay, Do you want to go to Rome or do you want to go to London? Okay, How many times in life are you, do you have to face these two questions? You don't. The no. laboratory uh, contraptions. Correct. <laughs> Typically, you want to go to Rome or nothing, or you're going to go to London or buy a car. Okay, This is how the real world works. Right. Okay? The real world, nobody comes to you and say, uh, you have 1% probability of buying this. You don't know the probabilities in finance. You don't know the probabilities in economic decisions. You never know the probabilities outside of casino. Even then, you don't know the probabilities, okay? Agreed. Uh, fully well, you see? Agreed. So, so this is what I call ludic versus non-ludic. And it's tragic that I'm standing in a study, that I describe it now, okay, where uh, well, I told you I have all these statistical books, mm-hmm. and they're all ludic. Right. Okay, I have a full wall of them. I'm standing in front of it. I right, the processes are all ludic. Okay? The processes are that generate the the numbers in our samples are are mechanistic in some dimension. We, Me- mechanistic and known. Right. Yeah, like arrow de Brut is ludic. Mm-hmm. Right. Economics is largely ludic. All right. Or it's not your economics, uh, the the other. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, the Hayekian. The, it's what's so interesting about. I have to say this for for the readers who go to the book. The, the two books are really quite spectacular. Economists take a beating in the books. To, to the, not you guys. No, I know, but I have a footnote saying by economists. Uh, I don't mean these Hayekians. The, the, the I understand. Guys, right? Now you you like you like Hayek and yeah. you critique and Shackle, especially Shackle. And you critique the mathematical, uh, the sterility and 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 scientism of mathematical economics. I, I do more than critique. You know what I call them? What do you call them? Uh, you know who's going to be very good at a ludic game? Very, very good at ludic game when when the rules are very clear. Who? An idiot savant. An idiot savant. Yeah. <laughs> All right. so, and I, so I'm not shy. I know. Listen, I'm. I know. I I, I got a phone call. All right, saying uh, that there are a lot of articles now going to attack me. Yeah. And and I'm sort of not. Uh, I'm going to facing them, and I'm not worried because I know I'm right. But uh, I mean, it is. But they don't. Don't. What they don't like is the idiot savant part. <laughs> and I know I'm right about it. Well, okay? I, I like. Well, in particularly in finance. But yeah. I, what I, I just have to say this for for uh, listeners who who may be confused. Uh, one of the 
one of my pet peeves is people who confuse economics with uh, finance, economics with money. And there is a part of economics, a branch of economics that, that deals with money and deals with finance. And you argue in the book that that branch of economics is intellectually bankrupt, basically, because of its uh, its application of Gaussian techniques to, to a non-Gaussian world, the use of equilibrium techniques in a non-equilibrium world. I'm very or sim- an unknown equilibrium world. An unknown equilibrium yeah, world. So you don't know it. What, yeah, no, it may exist, but you don't know it, which is the same thing. Right? Which is even, well, it's even worse, I'd say. Yeah. As I'm very sympathetic to that, to that critique, but I think, as you point out, I think we might need a different name for the kind of economists that, that you and I are, are more partial to, the right. ones who, who are the economists who see uh, knowledge yes. as um, a vast, unknowable uh, landscape. In particular, um, there's a wonderful paper we've mentioned before on EconTalk, a very, very short paper. I think it's might be a it's under three pages. It's Is it the Bertke paper? No, it's it's. We well, can tell me about that in a second. But it's by a colleague, uh, James Buchanan, who won a Nobel Prize in economics, um, uh, and he argues in there that much of economics is we take these data points called prices or preferences or the people involved in a, this this game that we're, we could be talking about, and we then say, well. Let's see if we can find an optimum for this set of data. Let's find out what allocation of uh, goods and services make these people the happiest. That's a standard exercise in, in modern economics. And Buchanan's point is that the prices and the preferences often emerge from the process itself of trying to do well in life. And to take those as given data points is absurd. Is uh, sterile isn't the right word for it. So I think you're getting at that some somewhat when you talk about this ludic, non-ludic. A uh, ludic is L-U-D-I-C. Is the yeah, word. it comes from games. It comes from uh, game. So that sorry, distinction what? is a very powerful, uh, potentially very interesting distinction. That you know, as economists, we, we want to be like physicists. So we want to say, okay, we have planet A and planet B, and let's predict their orbit. Or we have economy A and economy B, let's predict their growth rate over the next five years. And they're not the same. Those are not the same exercises. Because they're sentient agents, sentient beings, humans, who are actually in an unknowing, imperfect world, where, as you say, not only do they not know the data out there, we don't even know what the data might be. So in that world of imperfect information, to posit a world that we could know of perfect information is slightly absurd. There was an article I, I cite there, okay, and I say uh, that every year or so there's an article that say that uh, that every couple of years there's an article uh, starting with Hayek's Nobel uh, lecture, uh, The Pretense of Knowledge. There's a, an article that basically complains about the point. And complains about which point? Year, about uh, which point? Uh, Sorry? Complains about which point? It, it complains about that ludic... Uh, and, 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 of course, it uses different languages. doesn't use the word ludic fallacy. It complains about the mathematization of economics used to basically show off mathematical skills by people who are not really mathematically... Uh, typically, they're not good mathematicians, right? so they even have to do more of it. Okay, So, uh, and the last paper came from one of your colleagues uh, called Lowly Philosophers of High Priests. Uh-huh. Okay, and I quoted it in, in the, the Black Swan. I read it, I said, okay, this is another of these papers. I want to cite it now and look at, look at, look at what happened 
to it 10 years from now, and sure enough, it's going to be forgotten because it's not, it is not proposing something. All right? who, who wrote that paper? Uh, your colleague, Peter Botke. Oh, Pete Betke, yeah. Betke, you pronounce. Okay. Sure. Um, the, 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 you're, you're right. And, 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 and more, you know, uh, 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 to support your point, there is a, a gentleman called Shackle, mm-hmm. for whom economics was unknowledge. Sure. Shackle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 you can I mean you, nobody knows who Shackle is. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Uh, and Hayek himself is is although I, I'm, I'm thrilled that he's still known. Is not known as I as I wish he were. And you also cite uh, one of our favorites here at Econ Talk and the Library of Economics and Liberty, which is Bastiat, who, as you say, is not uh, a Frenchman who is not uh, often referred to in his home country, but who understood this distinction between the seen and the unseen and how important that is. Yeah, I mean, Bastia is, I'm trying to revive Bastia in French, and I'm working on my French translation, where I'm going to have a lot more Bastia. Here, here. Sorry? How's it going? Uh, the French translation? Well, what do you mean in the French translation? Uh, the Black Swan. The Black oh. Swan discusses Bastia. Right. Okay? But the French edition of the Black Swan is going to be different, because given that um, I have trouble with translators, so I, I usually change the book. So you're going to have. I a... let them translate the book, then I go change things. I don't have uh, to stick to the text, given that I'm the author. So the the French version, the Black Swan, will have more Bastia in it. It have a lot more Bastia in it. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. It have a lot more Bastia, and also the other heroes, Bishop Uwe, who discovered the Kahneman Tversky problems, uh, you know, before these guys said how we are born. Uh, uh, another person called Simon Fouché discovered. He explains to you how we tend to be dogmatic. So he said that people tend to theorize first, think later, right? Uh-huh, sure. And, uh, and then observe last, okay? Uh, that, 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 that tendency we have to, you know, it takes less effort to make a theory than to have none. Yes. Okay, so, so, so we're falling, you know, for that trap of making theories because it's the easy thing to do. And doubting is the hardest thing to do. Yeah. So, I mean, what's the name of that profession? Is it economics? I mean, I would like, if you find a name for that profession, right? Uh, well, I like how you call Hayek a philosopher rather than a economist. I call him a philosopher because, uh, I mean, I said, unfortunately, he's he's called an economist. He's a philosopher. I mean, he was of some influence on Karl Popper. Yes. He was, uh, he resembles Karl Popper. Uh, I would say in some respect, he's much deeper than Karl Popper. His ideas are his own, okay, Hayek, whereas I discovered that a lot of the things about falsification were not just Popper, you see, or John Stuart Mill, and of course, I discovered a bunch of Frenchmen. Okay, uh, that nobody uh, knows about even in France called Victor Bouchard, all right, who were obsessed with uh, falsification. You see, there was a class of French. So, so, so Popper isn't as as much the Popper that we think he is, and Hayek is a lot more uh, uh, of the philosopher that that uh, Popper should be. You well, see? Un- unfortunately, I think um, I've often thought about a different name for myself and, and my colleagues who have similar leanings than economists so that people would not confuse us with uh, stock market analysts or um, other forms of uh, shamanism. But it's a um, philosopher – you know, political economists used to be what we were called, the people who tried to meld uh, the different flavors of social science. You know, Adam Smith was not interested in money particularly. He's somewhat interested in it, but he – he wrote a, um, a glorious book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is about human nature. It's not about the stock market. It's not about gross domestic product or any or interest rates. And it's a shame that our field has uh, lost that. But just having a name for it would be a good starting point. I, uh, you know, 
Philosopher is good. I, I mean, like philosophy. I mean, you guys, you guys started as philo- moral philosophers, okay? Yeah. And uh, eventually, you know, it should be uh, uh, it should be something back in philosophy well, and the- relevant philosophy. You, you know, in, 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 at the end of uh, the Black Swan, I go after analytical philosophy. Yeah, I like that. I got a kick out of that. See? Uh, they, 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 they worry about the uncertainty. Okay, you see, for example, when, when people hear the word uncertainty, it's immediately associated with the greater uncertainty principle. So this is, called, this is the uncertainty of idiot savants. Okay, it's the uncertainty of quantum mechanics. All right, it's Gaussian. Okay, or near Gaussian, or definitely mediocristan. It's right. not extremistan. Okay? But, but so here's the question: You and yeah. I, let's say, yeah, we we've never met before. Yes. And uh, we've we've never spoken. And, and I'm uh, I can't imagine this, but for some reason I'm in New York and I'm on the in the upper on the Upper East Side at a very uh, Extraordinarily fitted out apartment, looking over Central Park, and there's a bunch of witty, intelligent people there, and wise people, and glamorous people. And I go over to get a um, a single malt scotch, not a scotch, but a single malt scotch. And you're getting, um, I don't know, I don't know what you're getting. I only drink uh, ascetic habits. I only drink. Uh, uzo, Greek Uzo, or uh, Lebanese Arak, or French Pastis. Okay, so you're having some Arak, and yeah. I, and you turn to me and say, "So what do you do?" And I say, "Well, I'm a moral philosopher." Now, for you, you'd, your face would light up, and you'd say, "Oh, really?" And we'd start a conversation. The average person will slink off to. I'm afraid is going to slink off to the corner uh, with no uh, conversation in between. I, do you think this is going to work? Yeah, but let me tell you. Whenever you tell, uh, if you tell people, "Hey, I'm an economist or I'm in finance," okay, That's they're a nightmare. Uh, automatically going to ask you what you think the market will do I know. tomorrow, or, or if you have stock tips. Okay. Yeah, I know so, they do. So, so you're better <laughs> off telling them that. Uh, my technique, as I say in the Black Swan, is whenever people ask me what I do for a living, I tell them I'm a limo driver, so they leave you alone. I like you know, I like that a lot too. Limo driver. I well, I used to do you know I do uh, the lawn work is, is always good. Um, but limo driver is good, and they do leave you alone. But if you want to have an interesting conversation, yes, uh, economist is a conversation ender as well. But moral philosopher might do better. I, I might try that. It definitely. I mean, I, I tell you, I, I, I think most people would would rather have a discussion with uh, with a philosopher than with an economist. But the word a friend of mine coined for me, he said, you should describe yourself as an empirical philosopher. Oh, that's nice. I like that, too. Because you're not dealing with consciousness or metaphysics. You're dealing with applied problems in a philosophical... with a philosophical bent, so it has some. Empir- I mean, philosophy is supposed to be non-empirical, you see. Right. But you're bringing some empiricism there. Uh, let, let me add two or three things. Yeah, sure. Uh, go ahead. Okay, I think what I've done with the Black Swan, okay, is uh, is is try to bring some statistical argument against statistics itself. I think that's correct. Yeah. So, which, which is why even philosophers don't use empirical argument. I use empirical argument by saying, if I want to tell you that all of statistics is junk, all I have to give you is one example. Okay, that dominates all the tales. You see, all you need is one simple example to show that the theory doesn't work. Well, I just I mean, so you don't even have to provide statistics. Just one simple incident, okay, can prove the theory wrong. But I love the point, the story you tell about the casino. I think most people would say, well, casino is an easy way to make money because all the risks are destroyed by the lar- large numbers. You just have enough people come in and gamble. Sure, you'll have some people win a lot, but you have people who lose a lot. It's a money machine. 
And what's the biggest risk you face? Well, there isn't any really because as long as you have enough customers. I mean if you have three customers, sure, you could lose money. But tell the what, – what's the biggest source of, of money loss for, for the a casino that we, you were looking at? Yeah, it was – I mean they lost um... – I think the the yearly variations were were were, were almost non-existent okay? in in their take in their from gambling. Business, yeah, because of a lot of large numbers. But they they lost uh, the first one is they had uh, it's called Ziegfeld and Roy. They, they had a one of the performers was attacked by a lion. Yeah, by a tiger, I think. By yeah. a tiger. Okay, yeah. and the tiger grew up in the same bedroom. Yeah, okay. and he mauled him, and, and, and they got s- and they got sued, right? And then they had to deal with it. They had to deal with the losses because they had no other show. So you have, uh, you know, they had to bring another show, and it takes a long time to have a show. Did they get show. Did they get sued also? And they got sued, of course. They had all kind of problems. They lost, uh, I don't know, somewhere close to a hundred million dollars. Right. So that's, to me, that's the that's the it's not the most um, entertaining example in the book, but it's a beautiful. There are many more entertaining examples, but it's a beautiful example of how a the risk that's involved is outside your perception. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is what I call the tunneling problem. You see? Yes. Yeah, but uh, they also. I mean, that was not, not the only case. I mean, they had four other uh, problems yeah. <laughs> of almost equal magnitude. That had nothing to do with gambling. Yeah. That had nothing to do with being yeah. a casino. Sorry, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. So what else did you? So you're using statistics to fight statistics. Yeah, by by showing, uh, you know, by 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 showing that if uh, what epistemologically, I think that we have we need to use something I call the power laws. Okay. <laughs> and power laws have one problem. They cannot calibrate. <laughs> now, what do you mean by that? Okay, in other words, with the Gaussian, the Gaussian has, has what I call the self-referential uh, problem, and it's as follows. The Gaussian will tell you itself how, many, how, how much data you need okay, to, uh, to uh, be certain about its parameters. Right. Okay? Uh, it's the, 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 I mean, it's the only distribution of that class of distribution, okay? Is the only situation in statistics where you encounter okay uh, uh, self-reference, and it's self-reference that makes it work. Uh, let me give you an example. Okay, say you need uh, you have data. Okay, you want to decide what probability distribution. Okay, mm-hmm. you have to use data to discover what probability distribution you have. No, right. Okay. Now, how do you know if you have enough data? Okay, from a probability distribution. Okay, so you need data to discover the probability distribution, and you need uh, you need that to know how much data you to need. Do how, you know. Exactly, probability distribution is how much data. It's exactly like asking someone, "Are you a liar?" Okay, or we say the truth. Yeah, right. And the Gaussian tells you, "Well, I say the truth." Okay, if you have X number of data, then uh, then, then 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 you can say, "I am." I, then I can tell you, "I am a Gaussian." Okay. Mm-hmm. So that problem of self-reference is very acute. Yes. Okay. Uh, the, I, I I have a few things on my site uh, that that explain uh, the the magnitude of the uh, of the errors that you can have when when you have non-Gaussian. Okay. Okay. But one thing is for certain: it's not easy to discover uh, the properties or uh, calibrate a power law, something called the power law. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is exactly opposite spectrum. Uh, most of extremist stand is represented by what I call power laws. Okay. Okay. You do, cannot find the parameters very easily, and for some calibrations, you need a high number of data. Okay, so the distribution don't tell you how much you need. Okay. To accept, uh, uh, in other words, they don't ex- examine themselves. It, it's a little complicated, but it's a very uh, potent mathematical argument I use there. Okay. 
as foundation for skepticism. First, I can show it's not Gaussian. Okay, it's very easy to see that the data is not Gaussian. Okay. Now, the, other, the second point is, if it's not Gaussian, the answer is not easy. Agreed. Okay, this is, this, is, this, is, this is sort of the message of the book. You can use some classes of distributions to sort of uh, get a, an idea of your sensitivity to model error. Mm-hmm. But you cannot use them to make precise predictions. And that's the tragedy, of, of course, of chaos theory. Chaos theory, people thought, hey, we're going to use chaos theory to build better models. No. If chaos theory tells you something, it is that you cannot build models. And uh, you saw the you, you saw in the chapter of Poincaré the projection of errors over time, how yes. how bad it can be in a, in a, in a nonlinear world. Well, I enjoyed that. I, I have to say, I, again, as an economist who yes. uh, takes a more biological, organic, emergent Hayekian approach, I'm very sympathetic to the argument that of the. Uh, what I call the, uh, and you call the n-body problem or the n-billiard ball problem. Yes. When you have a two-body problem is is pretty feasible in physics. It can be somewhat feasible in economics. When you have a modern economy with n people bouncing around off each other, the level of complexity is sufficiently high that, again, you get the Hayekian problem that we don't have enough. Uh, there's no way of capturing the full body of knowledge we'd need to organize that society from the top down. It has to be a bottom-up solution. It has to be uh, an unplanned, not centrally planned um, solution. So I'm I'm very sympathetic to that. I see. But I don't I don't think you want to argue that that therefore we can't predict anything, right? No, Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying we can't predict anything. I, I, first of all, the, the first statement I'm, I'm making here is a lot of people claim that they're good predictors are in fact not good predictors, and 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 you have all the papers I cite. Okay, I did the meta-analysis, right? You have 1,200 references in there, so of which a large number concerns the prediction problem. Okay. The second one is that when you predict a, a variable for 25 years. Okay, in a nonlinear world, uh, your error is not going to be uh, twice or three times the error of one-year predict- prediction. It's going to be more like uh, several trillion times the error. People don't realize that. Yeah, no, they, the degradation of your of your forecasting through time is monstrous. And the third problem is psychological: is that people would like to predict. Okay, uh, it, it, for them, it is more a therapy than anything else. Okay. Yeah. So you have if you, you there's no problem making a prediction if number one you have a handle of your error rate, two you know that the side effect of making a prediction is gonna you know that it's gonna lower your anxiety therefore make you more of a sucker okay for a black swan, mm-hmm. and number three okay you are you test okay you look at your error after the fact. I gave the example of the government predicting oil prices 25 years down the row at. Uh, $27 a barrel, and then six months later, they had to double their forecast. And it didn't hit them that if you have to double your forecast six months into a 25-year forecast, six months into its life, okay, that there's something a little strange about your maybe you don't, Yeah, maybe you don't really understand the underlying process. That or or maybe, maybe you should not, you should tell people, this is my prediction. Let me give you another example of where you can use the forecast error as central to decision-making. And it's more important than the forecast. If I'm going to uh, Nice, France, the weather's going to be 65 degrees, okay? Uh, Fahrenheit, of course. Okay, plus or minus 10 degrees. I know what kind of suit, what the size of the suitcase I need to carry there, okay, to be protected for all weather conditions, okay? Right. But if I'm going to go 
to Mars, where it's going to be 65 degrees plus or minus a thousand degrees, my suitcase will be will have to be considerably larger. No, correct. So your forecast error matters in some cases when it's high more than the forecast. Yes, <laughs> they didn't realize it. There's an old uh, uh, trader saying, "Don't cross a river if it's on average four feet deep." Correct. Okay, so this this is not ingrained. So in other words, a lot of things we can do if you start saying we're fallible and we're not good with knowledge, we're human ungood with knowledge. I mean, that's what Socrates tried to do. Okay, well, all I'm saying here is a footnote on Socrates, on his uh, his um, uh, his last uh, spiel in, uh, in uh, the Apology, right? Where he said the difference between him, he may know more than I do, but I know what I don't know better than he does. That's sort of what he said. Now, ignorance, yeah. ignorance is a very powerful, um, valuable trait to embrace at the right time. Yeah, because there's there, there are situations. What I, what I, in finance, I recommend, I say, okay, if instead of thinking you know it, okay, you say, I don't know it, well, you can realize that there's some degrees in your ignorance, okay? And there's things that are more robust to forecast errors than others. Just like the portfolio I was discussing is more robust to the lax one. Some th- situations are more forca- uh, robust to forecast errors, you see? Yes, and that's... Um... And, and Yes. No, go ahead. And 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 in 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 a in a rebuttal now I'm writing because of course I'm attacked left and right and when a Nobel wants to attack you it's always nice because then you can write a rebuttal the other you see it's good for so, it's good for I, sales too yeah okay and I'm I'm writing the following <laughs> is that the problem we have of course we inherited it from the Enlightenment it's not just the economists it's the Enlightenment okay. Because before the Enlightenment, you have really very, 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 very good thinkers that are completely, you know, outside our consciousness. Look what the French did to uh, to Bastiat. They did that to many more thinkers, okay? Bastiat luckily survived because of America, but, but he has a lot of thinkers. Okay, anyway, so we, everything is probably summarized with uh, Marx saying, he said, I want to turn knowledge into action. Okay, I don't want to be sterile philosophers like you. Mm-hmm. Okay, and he was talking to Hegel, sort of indirectly via his thesis on Feuerbach. And the statement I'm making is, I want to do the opposite. I wanted to turn a lack of knowledge into action. Uh-huh. Okay, and That's this is nice. this 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 to me is I mean is summarizes the difference between the Enlightenment and what we should be doing. You see. It's uh, build an economy and society along lines that are conscious of its ignorance. Okay. Yeah, it would be uh, it would be a better world if we uh, embraced I don't know uh, when in fact we don't know. But it's, yeah, and, and, and we have a tableau here, and, and I try to do a tableau. Who, who is a pseudo expert, and where is the expert? We pretty much know that uh, uh, domains that are Gaussian have experts. Yes. And domains that are nonlinear don't quite have experts. Yeah, but okay. we like experts. There's a demand for them. There's a taste for them. We really want to be assured how the world works. So we always um, have the potential to be uh, fooled by those experts. Well, we're at, we're out of time. My guest today has been Nassim Nicholas Taleb, author of Fooled by Randomness and the Black Swan. Thank you, Nassim, for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a delight. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.